Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Good morning. Welcome to episode 44 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Friday, we taped a special episode addressing Demkovich with Jessica Holliday of Baker, Sturchy, Cowden, and Rice in their Belleville office. Today, we uh, finally, Pat, have three appellate arguments again to cover. Uh, the first time in several regular episodes that we've had three cases that were uh, of interest and uh, argued. We're trying and, to line and up, not a, and not a slew of decisions to talk about to fill up the third segment, and then some. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> and we're trying to line up some additional special episodes as well, and more to come on that. Stay tuned. Uh, the first case today is Doe versus Hyatt, which is a forum nonconvenience that is not like the ones we have recently discussed that involved Madison and Saint Clair and other counties down in southern Illinois, but involves arguments to transfer halfway around the world to Turkey. Uh, the country of Turkey, and so uh, we'll talk about that case. The second is McCarthy versus United Union Pacific, a case from the 5th District involving issues of respondeat superior and procedural issues involved with that case. And the third and final case we'll cover today is Beerman versus State Farm, another 5th District uh, case involving issues of invited air that we've talked about some before with respect to invited air, but we'll cover that as well. With that, let's get right to our first case today, Doe. And the questions here include, should a case be transferred pursuant to forum nonconvenience to Turkey, where the alleged sexual assault occurred, and where the alleged perpetrator and parties that run the hotel where the incident happened has jurisdiction, or is Hyatt's headquarters in Illinois, where the allegedly fraudulent statements about the ownership of the hotel, where notice of a claimed prior incident was allegedly received, and over which there is personal jurisdiction and venue be sufficient to defeat the motion. In this case, Doe was a Minnesota resident. Does it matter that the plaintiff is not an Illinois resident and did not receive any of the allegedly false statements about the hotel in Illinois? What weight should be accorded to the claim that the Turkish civil justice system does not allow discovery and depositions and may not even allow a site visit of the hotel to determine sound and, and uh, ability to hear in, in various parts of the hotel. What weight should be accorded that there are no juries in civil matters in Turkey? And then at the oral argument that Pat will talk about in a minute, what about claims that such a suit is only worth about $2,500 at best in Turkey, and they're very difficult cases to prove over in Turkey? And as to the defendant's ability to defend the case, what about the fact that there's no personal jurisdiction over the perpetrator or the owners of the hotel in Illinois, and thus two cases will have to be litigated uh, regardless of, of what happens with this forum non-convenience motion. These are among the issues the appellate court, first district, will consider when it decides the case Jane Doe versus Hyatt Hotels Corporation, in which it recently heard oral argument. Pat, why don't you tell us about oral argument in this very interesting forum non-convenience case. Thanks, Dan. Uh, I, I want to start with a, a bit of a procedural issue and procedure not of the law, but procedure of the argument. And uh, uh, Hyatt was represented by my uh, former colleague, Scott Howie, who's an outstanding appellate lawyer 
and the current president of the Appellate Lawyers Association. And he had some real audio problems. And I don't he know did. if it was just him, but the, 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 the whole argument had an audio problem. And somebody somewhere along the line really screwed up. And it was really hard to hear this argument. That did not stop Justice Hyman from giving the third degree to Scott. Uh, I don't know what Scott did to deserve (laughs) what Justice Hyman, I mean, not that Justice Hyman did anything that was improper, just that he was all over him on a variety of issues. Um, From the start. From the the get. I mean, (laughs) he barely got his name out. And that that's not the way things typically go. I mean, they usually go, they're usually a very active bench, that panel, but this was an act of justice. <laughs> justice Hyman was all over him. Um, and so he was really struggling, Justice Hyman was, with the argument that they have a fundamentally different system of civil justice in Turkey. We have a responsibility, don't we, to make sure that wherever this case gets transferred, that the plaintiff has an opportunity to get justice, whether that justice is in the form of prevailing or not. If she does prevail, if she does prove her case, then she should be able to be compensated. And and the undisputed evidence in the record from an affidavit from a practitioner in Turkey who handles these matters was that these cases are worth about $2,500. You don't get discovery, status conferences for the whole case. a, a status conference for the whole case, the only status conference is what I mean to say, lasts about two minutes uh, in a case where you, there's an alleged sexual assault at a spa at a Hyatt hotel in Turkey. It was unclear whether it was Istanbul or another city in in in, in Turkey, but that's the idea. And, and, and there's and there's there's no witnesses in a lot of European courts. It's it's done by the depositions or other statements, and then the judges ask questions and lawyers. But there's no. There's no live witnesses, uh, according to some research I did yesterday as well. And, and there's no and and there's no jury here either, as as Dan mentioned in the opening. So, I mean, it's not it's you know Scott was clear. Is yeah, our civil justice system is as he called it the envy of the world. It's great, but that doesn't mean that she there's jurisdiction there. And his argument was, well, jurisdiction is enough because you've got the parties there. So. The, the, the allegations seem to be that this woman um, went and stayed at this hotel, this Hyatt branded hotel in, um, in, in Turkey. The hotel isn't actually owned by Hyatt. It's owned by some Turkish entity and one of their employees is alleged to have committed this assault. Um, and so one of the, one of the issues and uh, you see in forum non-convenience certainly is site visit. Is it important to go see the thing? Can the jury go see it? Well, in this case, there is no jury. So perhaps the finders, in fact, the, the judge or judges that are going to decide the case, they could go see it. But it's unclear that's even allowed during trial, much less during discovery, much less during trial. Uh, Scott kept coming back to that. And then ultimately he came to, well, they, we can't get complete relief here because you don't have personal jurisdiction over the perpetrator or the uh, company. And essentially, that was given the back of the hand by the justices. That, that's your problem. Uh, another interesting thing, it seems that counsel for the plaintiff initially did not file a Consumer Fraud Act claim, but then amended their complaint to add one. And there's going to be issues about that's subject to a motion to dismiss, I imagine, on extraterritorial application, both because she didn't see the inform- that information in Illinois and because it was related to an event and, and relating to circumstances outside of the United States entirely. 
So I, I don't know if that will, how that will work. Um, it, it's, you know, ultimately Scott got the dreaded question, which is what's, what's your best argument for X, Y, Z. And, and that's the point at which sometimes judges go or justices go. Yeah. That's your bet. The best you've got, I've got a real problem. Um, but ultimately he came back to, we can't get, they can't get complete relief here in Illinois because not everybody is subject to personal jurisdiction here and the perpetrator and the, uh, owner in particular, but the claims are Hyatt is headquartered here. There was an allegation of a prior incident, perhaps even involving the same perpetrator that was unclear. Uh, and so that, that notice was here at their headquarters in Chicago. So this is where the case is properly brought uh, how can Hyatt complain about it being inconvenient to litigate in its hometown uh, is essentially, uh, they didn't say that, but that's essentially the argument. And oh, by the way, we're one of the heirs to the business is the governor. How can you say that uh, this is uh, this is inconvenient for you? Uh, so it, it was a rough ride, shall we say, for Hyatt uh, before the first district. Um, and, but a very difficult and interesting case because it does raise a whole myriad of issues regarding proof. Uh, who has the burden? I mean, clearly the defendant has the br- burden of proving that one jurisdiction is uh, more convenient than the other. But on these issues of, well, how bad really is the Turkish civil justice system? Who has the burden of that? And, and it seemed, at least Justice Hyman was clear that he thought that was the, the burden of the defendants to show that. Um, Dan, uh, anything else we need to talk about on this uh, really crazy situation? I think you covered most of it. A, a, a couple things. One is is that there was also discussion. You mentioned the consumer fraud uh, claim, which was added on and was one of I think ten claims or whatever it was. That 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 one seems to be uh, the most uh, the, uh, likely or or most obvious, right? Having jurisdiction in Illinois because it was Hyatt that made those representations, whatever they were. Um, and I don't and, know. And, and having interest of Illinois jurors deciding the enforceability of a, of an Illinois uh, statute, but you don't get a jury in a consumer fraud case. Right. Uh. And, and, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, I think I, I think uh, uh, Scott was pressed some on that, too, as well, that there'd still be two actions regardless of if this was transferred, because that uh, piece probably most likely stays in Illinois. I was also thinking about, you know, the enforcement of foreign judgments and, and you get into those issues. So you get a judgment in Turkey, 2,500 bucks or whatever. And if it's against Hyatt at all, then you have to come back here, right, to to domesticate the judgment. And so. Well, uh, if Hyatt, well, I, I don't know about that, because if Hyatt, no. if Hyatt moved to transfer it to Turkey, they would have to consent to personal jurisdiction personal. in in, in, for, in Turkey. And so any enforcement yeah, proceedings could proceed against them there. You can't very well say transfer it there and then kick the case out. That only works prior to Township of Nick in the Supreme Court on takings cases where you got to remove a case to federal court and then claim the federal court didn't have subject, didn't have for, uh, subject matter jurisdiction. That only worked in that game following the uh, San Remo Hotel case. But that's, in this case, they would be true. stuck there. They'd be stuck and, there. And again, the... The difference in I don't know how much this case is worth, but but the the fact that it would only be worth twenty five hundred bucks in Turkey, like you said, Justice Hyman especially was really uh, having issues with that. That that did not seem like that's a a fair and equitable transfer, right? That the justice could not be uh, realistically done in this case. 
at least not from the, an American perspective of what a sexual assault is worth. It's worth, if, if proved, it were, is worth well more than uh, 2500 $2, bucks. For sure. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with McCarthy versus Union Pacific. We're back for segment two of episode 44 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're going to change to uh, cover McCarthy versus Union Pacific. And just as in the prior case, we had a, a luminary of the defense appellate bar, uh, here too we do uh, with Tim Eaton uh, of the Taft firm representing the uh, representing Union Pacific, uh, who is a, ba- a past president of both the CBA and the ISBA. Uh, so that, that, quite an achievement uh, and an excellent uh, appellate lawyer. Um, he uh, This case picks up on a number of themes that uh, we've discussed on several episodes that you'll you'll kind of you'll kind of detect. So in this case, some of the questions are: Is a verdict improper where the defendant employee has a verdict against him for ten thousand, and the defendant employer has a verdict against it of three point one four million? And if Tim said three point four one four million once in the argument, he said it ten or fifteen times just to drive home the point of the disparity between the judgment against the employee and the judgment against the employer. Um, is a defendant who objects to multiple statements during close, during close that are violative of a motion to eliminate in a closing argument entitled to request a mistrial despite not having asked for an inter- intermediate relief somewhere in between uh, a, a striking of the statement and, a, and, a mis- and an entirely new trial? Does the fact that a supervisory employee was the was the was making improper physical contact uh, to the plaintiff. Does that give notice of the employer of the violation, uh, something construct, some sort of constructive notice? So this case was heard by the fifth district recently. Uh, the plaintiff was a victim of unwanted contact by a supervisory employee. There wasn't a suggestion that this contact was sexual in nature. In fact, there was a suggestion. It wasn't described what this contact was. There were this happened five times, right? Um, and the fourth occasion, it was reported to uh, Union Pacific and a reprimand was issued. But then the fifth incident occurred, leading to the plaintiff suffering a substantial injury, apparently, and $500,000 of medical bills. The matter proceeded to trial, uh, where the defendant was asked, asked for separate verdict forms for Union Pacific and for the defendant employee which this case kind of echoes a case we talked about on episode 31 of the po- of the podcast, Fletcher versus McQueen, that's currently being considered by the Illinois Supreme Court, where the jury found the defendant employee not liable at all, yet found a, but entered a verdict against the employer that included a million dollars in punitive damages. So there's a, a theme in incongru- of incongruity here, how an employee can only be $10,000 liable on a respondeat superior theory the employer is millions of dollars in in hock to the plaintiff. The plaintiff argued that it was invited error by the defendant that they had these two different verdict forms instead of putting them on one verdict form. Um, and then during closing, plaintiff used reptile tactics to talk about the jury needing to be a protector of the community, which he denied. Oh, I didn't do that. But he got four objections were sustained during closing. And apparently there were 11 statements identified overall, only four of which were objected to 
which kind of harkens back to the case we talked about in Allen versus Sarah Bush. The difference in that case, if you recall, was they didn't ask for the mistrial. In this case, they did. So the question is, is it enough? So with that, Dan, uh, why don't you tell us more about this case that's kind of all over the place in terms of issues and, and, and flush this out more for us? Thanks, Pat. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, Tim Eaton, past president of the CBA, a good friend of mine, he uh, took over the year after I was president of the Chicago Bar, or uh, he was before me. Uh, so I, I took the gavel from him and a great, great advocate. Um, Indeed. There, there, there was a lot of, uh, lot of luck going on in this case. Like you said, the reptile tactics. And by the way, I love that. I love the uh, ascription of reptile tactics. It just, to me, conjures up right immediately, kind of pre you know caveman type of behavior um that's what it's supposed to do right that's the whole if you if i've written about it for the chicago daily law bulletin i've filed a brief on it uh you know we we've we run across these things but that's what it's supposed to do in the jurors it is and so yeah very interesting case Uh, 1201d which is the rule of the week we'll talk about more about it talks about uh these different uh, verdicts coming from from a jury uh, there, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of focus, as you mentioned, by uh, Eaton uh, with respect to these grossly disproportionate uh, verdicts. Um, and, and there was uh, uh, some questioning. Uh, I think the appellee, when he when he talked, he, he as you mentioned, he said, hey, the fact of the matter is, is the defense asked for these two special these two verdict forms. Causation was described differently to the jury. It talked differently. Um the plaintiffs actually argue that it should be one jury form, according to the appellee in oral argument, and uh, Union Pacific insisted upon these two separate uh, verdict forms, um, and, and so. And the trial uh, court agreed. The trial court agreed, and and, and like you said, uh, we we've covered some of these topics before, like invited there, and the the issue of uh, you you can't. If you ask for something and then it happens, you can't then be uh, heard to complain. Uh, the appellee also, uh, uh, you mentioned five incidents. The fifth one, it was uh, at oral argument. It, it appeared that there was an actual physical contact, but somehow the, the individual got hurt uh, because uh, uh, Tim was very clear on his uh, rebuttal that there was no uh, contact. That's the one that they got notice of or, or that they, they had notice of the fourth and the fifth one. Uh, was only for uh, certain types of damage. Um, it, it, it was interesting because, uh, like I said, the appellee um, um, said that, that they're not arguing about many things. They, they talked about under uh, under uh, FILA uh, and cases of general verdict, uh, 5 to 1201D, that you can't have these inconsistent verdicts. Vicarious liability puts you on the hook for all damages. And that the employer, in, in this case, uh, uh, there was no evidence in scope of employment. Um, they, 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 as you said, um, what happened at the trial court uh, was the plaintiffs uh, used extensively. They kept referring to uh, items that a motion to eliminate had had prevented. Uh, there was, I think, ten in ten statements. I think was was noted by one of the justices. And uh, Union Pacific only objected to four of those, uh, but then did go for a mistrial. 
And so that that kind of uh, was asked about by the by the justices. And the justices specifically referred to the Sarah Bush case. I mean, that was the the, the plaintiff said, hold it. There's this Sarah Bush case. And I didn't say anything nearly as bad as what the advocate said there. And then it was pointed out, well, but there they didn't ask for a mistrial. They didn't reach how bad it was, really. Right. And on rebuttal, I thought I, I thought the rebuttal, we've talked about some effective rebuttals. I thought Tim was very effective on his rebuttal here because there was this talk about uh, supervisory, um, I forget the exact phrase that was used over and over again at the trial. Um, and, and the uh, appellee said, no, we didn't use those that exact term. And, and in rebuttal, Tim started by saying, look, here's the quote from closing argument that they say was so innocuous. Uh, Make no mistake, this case about more than one man getting hurt at work you have more to do with safety than the rest of your lives. 2.8 million workplace injuries occur a year, and you can help uh, with, with curative safety. And so it was like this public guardian type of approach, right, that you, the jury, have the opportunity to uh, correct the ills of the world, especially in this case. And that's what was objected to. And, and, and again, um, the, the, uh, they did object to that statement. It was sustained. And, and, and there's uh, standard motions in eliminate that deal with that in every case. That 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 statement is so verboten. The uh, a motion in limine covers that every time, and it's granted without objection every time. So he knew that he couldn't say that. Right, right. And and the the other thing that I think was effective on on the rebuttal was was uh, uh, Tim did concede. Yeah, there were separate verdict forms, and there was different causation. But, but what he argued in, uh, towards the end of his uh, rebuttal was that counsel overlooked the fact uh, that the jury was instructed once you found either defendant liable, you had to award based on their liability. And, and so there was that instruction to the jury as well. And, uh, and, and so, um, and again, the justice, one of the final questions that was asked of, of Eaton on, on rebuttal was that uh, you, you complained of 11 uh, statements uh, in closing, it were inappropriate. You only objected to four, and and uh, uh, the trial court did give a, a curative instruction. But again, uh, it it sounds like the the plaintiffs uh, have substantially used uh, this kind of reptile tactics repeatedly in closing, and uh, and and uh, Eaton and 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 the defendants in this case are arguing that uh, that caused these inconsistent verdicts and uh, caused such a incongruous, uh, you know, set of 10,000 versus 3.14 million. And as you mentioned, uh, that number did come up it, yeah, at least a dozen times, I mean, repeatedly. So did I miss anything, Pat, on this case? Well, I, I think it's important uh, to understand that this was a FELA claim. Yep. So there's certain, co- there, there's, it's, which is essentially workers' comp for um, railroad employees. Um, that's, that's the nature of the claim. So there's, different causation than you would think of in a normal, in a normal case. Uh, that is that there really isn't any, they're kind of stuck with it. If it, if it happened at work and they, and they had notice of the, of the condition, which is why there's this notice dispute um, about whether this was because it was a supervisory employee that was committing uh, the alleged wrongs. Um, it was unclear to me, Dan, maybe you picked up on it. I, I couldn't tell. Did the employee have a separate lawyer from the, from the railroad? He'd have to, wouldn't he? 
I, I would have thought so, but it, it sounded like they were jointly defended. Uh, and, and that seems very, very strange. Um, it, doesn't it? But but it did sound like from, from the oral argument, I did not get the sense that they were separate because right. they talked about the trial court and, the, and objecting and and Tim represented both on on this appeal, so I, that was. Well, I, I can't imagine why why the uh, why the the person who allegedly did the assault would appeal ten thousand dollars. He should get his checkbook out and write that as fast as he can. Right. I can't imagine he's appealing that. Uh, Union Pacific, that's a different that's a different story. But the uh, right. but the, the guy who only got hit for ten grand, write the check, sir. Um, right. Be and, done. Write the check and be done with it. Um, so with that, we'll take our next break and come back and talk about insurance coverage because nothing will end your day like insurance coverage. Have a great day. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We are back for segment three of episode 44 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and our third case today is Bierman. It is axiomatic in insurance law that the insured has the burden of bringing their claim within coverage, However, does that change when the insurer is the plaintiff in a declaratory judgment action? Does it matter that after initially getting it wrong at the urging of counsel for State Farm and having the defendant claim and present their evidence first and putting the burden on them, in other words, was the defendant prejudiced by the way that the case proceeded? These are among the questions the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District will decide when it decides in the case State Farm Mutual Automobile Insurance Company versus Behrman that was recently argued. This case was previously at the appellate court. That decision will be linked in the comments along with the oral argument. And in that first decision, the court held that the issue of who was an insured was a question of fact requiring a trial. The issue is whether an itinerant ex-stepson of the insured had his primary residence at her home, such that his estate can make a claim for uninsured motorist benefits because the definition of insured was ambiguous. Pat, tell us about an oral argument in this case. So I'm going to start by telling a story because I, I, I had this experience when I was a young lawyer, um, which was a long time ago now, unfortunately. But uh, I was trying a case in front of Judge, getting ready to try a case in front of Judge Billick, uh, who was on the Chancery bench at the time. He's now retired and acts as a, as a uh, mediator and arbitrator here in, in Chicago. And I convinced, we had filed a complaint for declaratory relief, and uh, there was a first party claim, and we took the position that uh, they had the burden, even though we were the plaintiff. And Judge Billick agreed with me. And in getting ready for the trial, I was looking for something else and came across a case called Gittleson versus Farmers, which is an Illinois Supreme Court case from 2003 that says I was wrong. And that's exactly the case that ultimately convinced the plaintiff, the, the judge in this case, after he had tried the case. But what happened in my case was I went to the judge the day of the trial. I said, Judge, I was wrong in pre-trial, the pretrial conference. Gittleson controls. I gave him the case. I said, judge, I'm the plaintiff. It doesn't matter if they're the insured. I, I have the burden. I'll go first. I'll present my evidence. I'll still win, but <laughs> I don't think it makes a difference. But I, here it is. So he, uh, I'll, I convinced him I was wrong. That's not usually how you go out winning a case. Uh, but fortunately, we did win that case. Uh, 
So back to Bierman. So as Dan said, in this case, this is its second trip to the appellate, to the appellate court. And in the first trip, State Farm had one summary judgment where the court held the, the, just the trial court had held that the, um, uh, the deceased who was, as Dan said, an itinerant stepson, ex-stepson of the insured might qualify as a resident relative. So under a policy of automobile insurance, there can't you can have what are called affinity relationships that can expand the definition of who is an insured. And in this case, the policy provides coverage to a resident relative, which means a person other than you, you being the named insured, who resides primarily, and that's the issue in the case, resides primarily, with the first person shown on the as the named insured on the declaration page, and who is, number one, related to the named insured or his or her spouse by blood marriage or adoption, including an unmarried and unemancipated child of either who is away at school and otherwise maintains his or her residence with the named insured, or a ward or foster child of that named insured, his or her spouse, or a person described in one above. Now, that's clear as mud. <laughs> uh, the bottom line is this, is that it's somebody who you were related to. And the question in this case was, are you really related to an ex-stepson who happens to lay on your couch for six months? Right. That was the question. And visits and, his daughter uh, well, yeah, at, at it, your place or, or picks her up there. Well, they, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah we'll, we'll get there. And the uh, so they have to prove what is residency. So residency is typically an intent to remain. But this this definition says primary residency. I don't even understand what that means in right. the context of the definition of residency being intent to remain. And this guy apparently has a, like a bag and he goes around to various family and friends and lives at their place and then comes back. And then we come back to, I I'm a big fan of Mel Brooks. And I am too. And, and, and my, my, one of my favorites is Spaceballs. And if you recall near the end when they have the scene spoofing, when Luke, t Luke gets told by Darth Vader that he's his father and, they spoof it by saying, I am your father's, brother's, nephew's, cousin's, former roommate. What does that make us? Absolutely nothing. That's the question we have here is whether uh, um, is whether the itinerant stepson is that itinerant. And that is so the testimony that the defendant who had the burden, he brought forward the stepson's ex-wife or mother of his child who would pick up and drop off the child with him at the named insured's home. That was the only place that he was there. And then you had the named insured who testified at a deposition quite clearly that he resided there, even though his mail went to some other place. Right. And then at trial, she waffled. And she waffled quite a bit under questioning by the defendant who had called her as his, wit as his, pri as his witness, and now he had to impeach her or refresh her recollection because of because of her having waffled. And it, it was he was like, I guess prejudiced because I was made to put on my put on the proof when I should have been able to just sit there and not have to do anything. How can the plaintiff who always has the burden come in, stipulate to a policy of insurance, wash their hands, sit down and say, go ahead, defend it, prove the case. That doesn't seem right. I was prejudiced. And oh, by the way, this was invited error because the defense, just as they had done in Union Pacific, asked for 
this method of proceeding. The the judge, the trial judge, in his opinion, after the trial, caught the mistake and said, "Eh, it's still okay. Right? I, I could still I, I I will assess the burden the proper way, but I don't know how you unring that bell where think where evidence was taken out of order and the burden was incorrectly applied at trial. Uh, I, I I don't know how that works. Um, Dan, uh, what are your thoughts on this case? I agree with you. And, and one of the interesting questions I thought from one of the justices was you, you, you can't impeach your own witness, right? And the, the advocate said, no, you can't impeach, which is true, right? You can impeach your of witness. Of course. You need to. You, and if you time. treat them as hostile, you do that. Right. That I mean, happens. You, 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 I mean, that's, that's, that's the world of, of law. Um, it, it is, uh, it's unusual, right? but I think it can be done. Right. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, the, 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 uh, persons whose, uh, house it was his former, uh, uh, mother-in-law, uh, she, uh, did, did in fact say that he could not reside there permanently. And so, but like you said, I, I'm not sure how you overcome, you know, the, you know, the judge conceded that, right. You know, I got this wrong, but Hey, it's okay. I, I'm not sure how you overcome that, uh, that, that error. But the, the problem is if they go back to trial and as you said, she, she's going to say, well, he could stay here for a time, but that's right. not in, that's not intend to remain. Right. He apparently, I, I guess it's possible for not everybody to have a residence, which is why I think that then you run into the problem of this crazy term primary residence yeah. and for how long. It's a very badly worded uh, policy, and that's really what got them in trouble in the first place. It was found ambiguous, and I think they've got—I think State Farm's got a real problem. I do too, and, and you know there was also talk about this fifty-one percent, and like you said, the definition of what your primary residence is, and confusion because is is him just picking up his his uh, daughter? There's all kinds of questions here, and uh, it's. Well, uh, but going back to primary residence, you can't have primary residence suggests you can have a secondary residence. You could only have one residence because it's the place you intend to remain. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. Well, you know, again, maybe it's maybe it's intended for snowbirds that, you know, live less than six months somewhere. I don't I don't know. It is. It's very confusing to me. And uh, uh, just just it, it does raise interesting issues. But I, I agree with you. I think that State Farm has some issues here. So that brings us to um, our record for the week, Dan, and I think we we went one and one. We went one and one. So now our record's now forty five eight and three. Um, not not a bad. If we were heavyweight boxer or UFC, that'd be a pretty good record. Yeah, uh, we, we'd be we pretty happy a, with that. Yeah, and we had a split last week. Uh, the cases and how we did our the first case was Christo versus Law Offices of Thomas Leahy. Uh, this was the Illinois Appellate Court First District. That reversed the trial court in Crystal versus Law Offices of Thomas Leahy. We had predicted an affirmance. This was a case uh, where there was a, a, a lady who uh, had uh, uh, was was uh, special needs, and her brother was in charge of the estate. And there was questions about whether or not, uh, you know, the, the uh, lawyers should have asked her questions and should have uh, got the public guardian involved. Uh, the court held that the court's decision affair of the defendant lawyers was against the manifest weight of the evidence, finding that they should have opened an estate for the disabled heir of the deceased underlying plaintiff. And that, that this case, uh, I think, opens a huge issue for plaintiff's counsel 
handling matters in which heirs are potentially disabled. Pat, your thoughts on this case? And it was a long yeah, the, opinion. Yeah, the corpus of the estate was created as a result of a judgment or settlement in a medical malpractice case and a two and a half million dollar uh, payment to the family that was split several ways. And the uh, bank account was opened, co-signed by the brother who uh, allegedly dissipated the half a million dollars or so. Right. And I, I, this case was tried to a bench. Judge Propes tried the case below. She's an excellent judge. She right. was a plaintiff's attorney um, and a state's attorney before that, before getting on the bench. And I don't understand how you come to a manifest way to the evidence ruling when there is evidence to support the proposition that they didn't have, they that the lawyers didn't, um, for whatever reason, didn't appreciate that she was disabled at the time because you're essentially relying upon a, a doctor who saw her in 2018 and said she would have been the same 20 years prior. Which is hard I, to I, I, don't, I don't. I don't get it. And then instead of granting judgment, to the defendant or to, to the plaintiff, they and, and they specifically deny the judgment NOV. They remand the thing back for another trial. Right. I I don't understand what, what's that trial. Going, why is that trial going to be different than the first one? Right. What what what's different? You have the same experts. Maybe the last. I I don't know. I, I I don't understand this ruling at all. No. I I I I just don't get it. Um. It, it doesn't make any sense to me, but there it is. At least it's unpublished. <laughs> That'll be the first time you'll ever hear me say that. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's at most persuasive, but goodness, it does. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So that brings about- us to Continental Western versus Country Mutual. This is a case uh, involving two insurers suing each other. And a preview next week, we're going to have talk about a case of two insurers suing each other. Uh, that was argued recently, federal insurance versus Westfield. But this case was over whether a vehicle is owned or not. So we have one case where we're trying to figure out where some fellow lives. And this one, we're trying to figure out who owns a car, in this case, an ambulance. And the court held that uh Mutual's insured owned the car, the ambulance, and they were responsible and they breached their duty to defend when they failed to uh, cover the other, insu- the other insured. And they were liable for a quarter million dollars in defense fees uh, in defense of the underlying lawsuit. Uh, and that was a case from the Seventh Circuit. Um, some facts were flushed out. We called it correctly. Some right. facts were flushed out that if I had known some of those facts, I would have I wouldn't have been nearly as skeptical of of my uh, of, of the decision. I, I think ulti- now that I know some more facts, it, 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 I, I'm far more comfortable with their decision than I, I was uh, based upon what we heard in the oral argument. Dan, anything to add on uh, country Western uh, continental Western versus country mutual? I agree with you with reading the opinion. It had some factual things that were not at oral argument and that we had not heard. So they must have been in the briefs that, that did, it, in fact, flesh out the, the decision. So it does make more sense now. Yep. So with that, uh, let's do our predictions. Sure to go wrong for this week, Dan. Uh, Doe versus Hyatt? Uh, what do you think? I, that's that's got to be one. an affirmance. There's, I think no, so. there's, there's no way. <laughs> Yeah, for I, I disagree with it, but I think that's I think it's I think they're gonna they're going to affirm the denial of the motion to transfer. I think so, especially with Justice Hyman's uh, questioning and, and right off the bat, like you said, very hot bench in terms of skepticism that that someone could get a fair trial in Turkey. That's right. 
Uh, that brings us to McCarthy versus Union Pacific. This one's a bit bit harder. It uh, is. I, I I think they're going to get their mistrial. I, I I think this is distinct. I don't know what the middle ground is between obje- a sustained objection and a con- and a curative instruction and a mistrial. What what's in between those things? Right. Uh, it it's steps. plain that the curative instruction didn't work. Right. It seems to me. So I, I, I think even in the fifth district, this is going to be a reversal. I think so too. And that brings us to Beerman versus State Farm. I, I think State Farm's got an issue here. I think they've about. got a big issue. I think it's going to get reversed, and I wouldn't be surprised if they don't just enter judgment in favor of the uh, of of the defendant, uh, and just say we're done with this. Right. This is enough of this. Enough of this case already. Uh, I agree. Y- your policy is ambiguous. The evidence is all over the place. We can't tell what it says. We're entering judgment. Uh, so I think this is going to be a reversal uh, as, and, and perhaps even a judgment in faith because they're going to go back and send this thing back to be tried again, right? And and, and get appeal number three. Okay. I, I think I think they're done with I this case. So I think so too. So that brings us to the rule of the week, Dan. Uh, Seven thirty-five ILCS five slash two dash twelve oh one D that came up in McCarthy. I am not familiar with this rule. Help us out. Sure. And what it says is that if several grounds of recovery are pleaded in support of the same claim, whether in the same or different counts, an entire verdict rendered for that claim should not be set aside or reversed for the reason that any ground is defective. If one or more of the grounds is sufficient to sustain the verdict, nor shall the verdict be set aside or reversed for the reason that the evidence in support of any ground is insufficient to sustain a recovery thereon, unless before the case was submitted to the jury, a motion was made to withdraw that ground from the jury on account of insufficient evidence, and it appears that the denial of the motion was prejudicial. And so, it's uh, it gives wide latitude that that the verdicts will not be disturbed if there's um, you know uh, several grounds of recovery, and and so um, we'll see if uh, that has any impact impact on on the decision of the appellate court. I don't think it's going to impact the reason I think that there'll be a reversal. It does get at the inconsistency of the verdict that Tim was urging. Um, and yep. the, the it gets at that issue, but it doesn't get at the improper comments by plaintiff's counsel during, during closing. I agree. Um, so I agree. with that, Dan, uh, that's quite a, that's quite a show today. Uh, lots yep. of issues. And uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, look out for a special episode. Uh, we'll, we're still efforting some of those, but at the very least, we'll be back next week. And hopefully the Seventh Circuit and the Illinois Appellate Court uh, keep us in business. For sure. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The 
purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firm's for which they work or their clients.